New York, this is Democracy Now! I have decided that the global monkeypox outbreak represents a public health emergency of international concern. As thousands of monkeypox infections spread to 75 countries, the World Health Organization declares a global emergency. Meanwhile, the U.S. waits to declare a public health emergency as cases are reported in 44 states with major outbreaks in New York, California, Illinois, Florida, D.C., and Georgia, and not enough vaccines. We'll speak with Joe Osmondson, professor of microbiology at New York University, whose efforts to help an infected friend are featured in the New Yorker piece, The Agony of an Early Case of Monkeypox. Osmondson's new book, Virology, Essays for the Living, the Dead, and the Small Things in Between. Then, with the overturning of Roe, the battleground for abortion access shifts to the states, even as the U.S. faces the worst rates of maternal mortality among all rich nations, with black maternal mortality three to four times higher than the national average. Now a new film examines this crisis through the families of two young black women who died after giving birth. It's called Aftershock. My daughter's story is loud, colorful, and artful. She was awake, aware, and active. And yet she still died. After she gave birth, Shamani was complaining that she had really sharp chest pains. The ambulance came. I'm telling them the symptoms. Is she on drugs? We'll speak with Aftershock co-directors Paula Isselt and Tanya Lewis-Lee. Finally, we speak with California Congressmember Ro Khanna about his efforts to address the ongoing infant formula crisis impacting working-class families and parents of color. He's calling on the stopping of price gouging. We'll also speak to him about January 6th insurrection and more. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. As the war in Ukraine enters its sixth month, Russia and Ukraine signed deals on Friday to reopen Ukrainian ports on the Black Sea in an effort to increase grain exports. The deals were brokered by the United Nations and Turkey. U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres praised the development. And let there be no doubt, this is an agreement for the world. It will bring relief for developing countries on the edge of bankruptcy and the most vulnerable people on the edge of famine. On Saturday, just a deal after the just a day after the deal was reached, Russia attacked the Black Sea port of Odessa. Ukraine said the missile attack damaged infrastructure, including a grain warehouse. Russia said the missiles were targeting Ukrainian military assets, including a docked warship and a warehouse housing U.S. supplied anti ship missiles. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky decried the attack on Odessa as, quote, barbarism and said it, quote, destroyed the very possibility of dialogue with Russia. In related news, some U.S. lawmakers are calling on the Pentagon to send military advisors to Ukraine. Republican Michael Waltz of Florida and Democrat Mikey Sherrill of New Jersey made the call after meeting with Zelensky in Kyiv Saturday. 
The New York Times recently reported the CIA already has personnel inside Ukraine. Burma's military junta has executed four men who'd been jailed for opposing last year's military coup. These are believed to be the first executions in Burma in over 30 years. One of the prisoners, Cha Min-yu, was the prominent pro-democracy activist, also known as Kojimi. He was a student leader in the 1988 uprising, has spent many years in jail. Another one of the political prisoners executed was Pu Zeyata, a former rapper who became a lawmaker in Aung San Suu Kyi's party. Pope Francis has arrived in Western Canada for what he's called a pilgrimage of penance. The Pope is embarking on a six-day visit of Canada to apologize for the abuse of indigenous children who were removed from their homes and sent to church-run residential schools where they face psychological, physical and sexual abuse. Canada's Truth and Reconciliation Commission described the practice, which went on for decades, as a form of cultural genocide. The commission determined more than 4,000 indigenous children died from neglect or abuse in the residential schools. This is Tony Alexa. Chief of the Alexis Nakota Sioux Nation. As a leader of the Roman Catholic Church, Pope Francis' apology is an acknowledgement of the Church's role in the harm and pain caused to Indigenous peoples living in Canada. For some, our people, Pope Francis' apology will not be enough. Healing is not linear. This apology will be a fundamental, a fundamental step towards forgiveness, closure, healing and reconciliation for many others. Much like Wakamne, the healing abilities, it is fitting that the Pope's visit to this healing place will bring healing to so many. The World Health Organization's declared the monkeypox outbreak a public health emergency of international concern. WHO Director General Tedros Adhanom Ghebreyesus made the announcement Saturday morning. There are now more than 16,000 reported cases from 75 countries and territories and five deaths. WHO's assessment is that the risk of monkeypox is moderate globally and in all regions, except in the European region, where we assess the risk is high. Monkeypox is not fatal, but can cause fever, rashes, and extremely painful lesions. It's most often spread through close, intimate physical contact. We'll have more on the WHO's decision and the U.S.'s decision not to call it a public health emergency after headlines. A federal jury has convicted former Donald Trump adviser Steve Bannon on two counts of criminal contempt of Congress for refusing to cooperate with the House Select Committee to investigate the January 6th attack on the United States Capitol. After Trump lost the 2020 race, Bannon helped devise ways to overturn the election and keep Trump in the White House. Bannon is expected to appeal. He's scheduled to be sentenced in October. He faces up to one or two years in prison. This comes as Republican Congressmember Liz Cheney says the January 6th committee might subpoena Ginny Thomas, the wife of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, if she refuses to answer questions about her role in the effort to overturn the election. In related news, the editorial pages of The Wall Street Journal and New York Post, which are both owned by Rupert Murdoch, have slammed Donald Trump for refusing to call off his supporters as they attack the Capitol on January 6th. 
In its editorial, The New York Post wrote, quote, It's up to the Justice Department to decide if this is a crime. But as a matter of principle, as a matter of character, Trump has proven himself unworthy to be this country's chief executive again, The New York Post said. China's reportedly issued stark warnings to the Biden administration over a planned trip by House Speaker Nancy Pelosi to Taiwan. China's publicly threatened to take, quote, strong measures if Pelosi makes the trip in August. But according to the Financial Times, China's privately warning the Biden administration it may respond militarily. Pelosi's trip has also faced opposition from within the Biden administration. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan reportedly opposes the trip out of a concern it could escalate tension in the region. If the trip goes ahead, Pelosi would become the most senior U.S. official to visit Taiwan in 25 years. At least 17 Haitians, including an infant, have died after a boat capsized near the Bahamas. The boat was carrying dozens of people who are trying to seek refuge in the United States. Twenty-five people were rescued. Bahamian officials said they have arrested two individuals from the Bahamas on suspicion of human smuggling. This comes as Haiti faces a dire economic crisis amidst increasing violence between rival armed groups. In Haiti's capital, Port-au-Prince, more than 300 people, including many children, have taken refuge in a high school to escape the violence. According to the United Nations, more than 934 people have been killed in Port-au-Prince so far this year. The U.N. has also documented nearly 700 kidnappings. More than 1,100 people have been rescued in recent days as they attempt to cross the Mediterranean on boats to seek refuge in Europe. The German group Sea Watch says it carried out five rescue operations over a 24-hour period and saved over 440 people. Meanwhile, the Italian Coast Guard said it rescued nearly 700 who were packed on a fishing boat off the coast of Libya. Five deaths were reported. In Tunisia, early turnout was light today as voters went to the polls to decide on whether to accept a new constitution put forward by President Kay Sayed that would give his office sweeping new powers. Many opposition groups are boycotting today's vote, which comes exactly one year after he ousted the prime minister and suspended parliament in a move decried by critics as a coup. In California, some 2,000 firefighters are battling a large wildfire near Yosemite National Park that exploded in size over the weekend. The Oak Fire has burned nearly 16,000 acres and is 0 percent contained. In New Mexico, two people were killed, a third missing after flash flooding struck an area that recently burned in the state's largest wildfire on record. Elsewhere in New Mexico, a stretch of the Rio Grande River outside of Albuquerque has run dry for the first time in 40 years. This follows three consecutive years of extreme drought in the region. This comes as a heat wave continues across much of the United States. More than 85 million people were under a heat warning or heat advisory on Sunday. In New Jersey, the city of Newark hit an all-time record high of 102 degrees Fahrenheit Sunday, capping Newark's first-ever streak of five consecutive days of triple-digit heat. Here in New York City, activists declared Friday a climate emergency day as they observed the famous climate clock in Union Square ticking down 
from seven years to six years. The clock marks the estimated time left to keep global heating under 1.5 degrees Celsius. Speaking with ABC's This Week, former Vice President Al Gore said on Sunday that extreme weather events will get even worse without immediate action on climate. If we don't stop using our atmosphere as an open sewer, and if we don't stop uh, these heat-trapping emissions, things are going to get a lot worse. Uh, more people will be killed, and uh, the survival of our civilization is at stake. A warning to our audience, this next story contains graphic footage and accounts of police violence. The Tennessee Bureau of Investigation has opened an investigation into police officers in the city of Oakland after they were filmed chasing a black man to his family's home and kicking in the front door before beating, tasing and violently arresting him. 25-year-old Brandon Calloway suffered multiple injuries to his arm, head and left eye in the assault, which left him needing eight stitches. Calloway's father says the beating left his son with severe psychological trauma. The violent arrest was captured on video by Calloway's girlfriend, who was screaming for the police to stop attacking her boyfriend. The video went viral on social media. The attack began after officers alleged Callaway drove 32 miles an hour in a 20-mile-per-hour zone and rolled through a stop sign. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. There have now been more than 17,000 cases of monkeypox infections in at least 75 countries, including the United States. Monkeypox isn't fatal, but it can cause fever, rashes, and extremely painful lesions. It's most often spread through close, intimate physical contact. On Saturday, for the second time in two years, the World Health Organization declared a global emergency to address the spread. The last time it was for COVID-19, this time for monkeypox. This is WHO Director General Dr. Tedros Adhanom Ghebreyesus. WHO's assessment is that the risk of monkeypox is moderate globally and in all regions, except in the European region, where we assess the risk is high. There is also a clear risk of further international spread, although the risk of interference with international traffic remains low for the moment. So, in short, we have an outbreak that has spread around the world rapidly through new modes of transmission about which we understand too little and which meets the criteria in the international health regulations. For all of these reasons, I have decided that the global monkeypox outbreak represents a public health emergency of international concern. Stigma and discrimination can be as dangerous as any virus. In addition to our recommendations to countries, I'm also calling on civil society organizations, including those with experience in working with people living with HIV, to work with us on fighting stigma and discrimination. But with the tools we have right now, we can stop transmission and bring this outbreak under control. 
Here in the United States, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention has reported more than 2,800 cases of monkeypox so far across 44 states, with the largest outbreaks in New York, California, Illinois, Florida, D.C., and Georgia. The White House has not declared a public health emergency that could bolster the U.S. response to the monkeypox outbreak. White House COVID response coordinator Dr. Ashish Jha said, quote, it's an ongoing but a very active conversation at HHS. That's the uh, Department of Health and Human Services. For more, we're joined by Joe Osmondson, professor of microbiology at New York University, scientist, activist, author of the new book, Virology, Essays for the Living, the Dead, and the Small Things in Between. He's featured in a new piece in The New Yorker headlined, The Agony of an Early Case of Monkeypox. The piece begins, quote, on the evening before Juneteenth, Joseph Osmondson, one of my best friends and a microbiologist at NYU, texted me, We think Andy has monkeypox. Two nights earlier, our friend Andy, as I'll call him, had spent hours hunched over in an emergency room with excruciating rectal pain, only to be refused testing. It was his third try in five days. Andy's anal sores were internal for patients to qualify for testing. CDC guidelines require the appearance of lesions on the skin. Osmondson needed help. Well, Professor Joe Osmondson, that's the opening paragraph of the piece in The New Yorker. Tell us where you went from there, and in the process, explain what monkeypox is. Yeah, I'll actually start with the second part. Monkeypox is not a new virus, and this is sort of why our community has been so frustrated by the lack of urgency to get us the tools we need to care for ourselves and each other and to prevent this virus. Monkeypox was discovered in 1958 in animals and was shown in 1970 to exist in humans. It's a virus that's related to smallpox. Um, you mentioned earlier that it's not deadly. Uh, it's not very often deadly, but in this outbreak so far this year, there have been five deaths, all of them in the endemic region uh, in, between Congo and Nigeria. Uh, it, it's a virus that is similar to smallpox, but less uh, less dangerous. But it, it causes pockmarks all over the body, high fever. The, 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 the lesions can be in the throat or on the mouth, uh, inside the anus and rectum. They are excruciatingly painful. And the course of infection typically lasts two to four weeks. And during this time, patients are asked to fully isolate. So again, it's a pretty miserable virus, although it's not very often deadly. The frustration has been that because it's so closely related to smallpox, we actually, prior to this sort of uh, explosion of monkeypox uh, outside of the endemic region, we have FDA-approved tests. We have FDA-approved medications that are likely to help ease suffering. And most importantly, we have vaccinations that can prevent infection. So we have all of the tools, and yet all of these tools have been exceedingly difficult to access, even for someone like Andy, who has a PhD, has friends who are working on the response. I mean, it took direct phone calls to contacts in the New York City Department of Health and in the federal government to get him tested 
And then once he was tested and presumed positive, it took another few days uh, to get him access to TPOX, which is, again, an FDA-approved medication that we thought would help. Once he did get TPOX, he went in 24 hours from being in the most pain of his life to the pain easing. And within five or six days, all of his lesions had healed and he was cleared to leave isolation. So the good news is we have the tools both to prevent infections and to ease suffering. The immense frustration in our community has been watching hundreds of people get sick not because they're having sex, not because they, of their queer identity, but because they've wanted to get vaccinated and those vaccines have not been available. I mean, we're here in Chelsea, New York, and this is where um, people lined up around the block to get vaccines, but there simply weren't enough. That's right. And that, that you know, the, the rollout in New York has gotten a lot of criticism. And, you know, the New York City Department of Health didn't reach out to community partners uh, prior to that. They just wanted to get shots into arms prior to Pride Weekend. They've been listening to us about how that didn't go well, and they are trying to do better. Um, they are reaching out to more community-based organizations. They're trying to have more vaccine equi uh, equity in, in non-white, uh, less affluent communities than the Chelsea community. But, you know, they are incredibly limited. You cannot have equity when vaccine is so scarce. It's just not possible. I wanted to turn to the protests that occurred last Thursday here in New York. Act Up New York organized an emergency march against monkeypox and government failure in New York City. This is Cecilia Gentili, founder of Transgender Equity Consulting, speaking at the rally. Sex workers are again being forced to the impossible situation of choosing between prioritizing their health or having enough money to survive. Sounds familiar? Yes, the same thing happened a couple of months ago with COVID. What did the government do? Almost nothing. What is the government doing now? Almost nothing. I am so tired of getting almost nothing from the federal government. Professor Joe Osmondson, if you can say what needs to happen, I mean, this weekend you have a Congressman Adam Schiff demanding that more be done. You have Ashish Jha on the weekend news shows saying they haven't decided whether to make the call this a national emergency in the U.S. And if it were called an emergency, what would that unleash? Yeah, it would just it would just increase the amount of funding and tools available. There's a couple of things going on here. One is the scientific response, the biomedical response that is absolutely lacking. There is no urgency. This should have been an easy virus to contain. Unlike COVID, unlike many other emerging threats, we have all of the tools. They are in a stockpile. The point of that stockpile is that it's meant to be there to respond to an emergency. Here we have an emergency and the stockpile has not been activated. We found out that vaccine sits in the stockpile in such a way that it can't actually get into people's bodies. And vaccine in a freezer is useless. So we need resources to mobilize the, the national stockpile that we have to help us, to keep us safe, to treat us when we're ill. But we also know, look, COVID is a, is a you know, a lot of us by now have done COVID isolation. 10 days, even five days 
it is incredibly difficult. It is costly. Sometimes you miss out on on work. Sometimes you have to get a hotel to isolate in. It is really difficult to do. Here we have an isolation with monkeypox that is two to six weeks. That is incredibly disruptive for people's lives. We've been having to crowdfund to get people the money that they need to take time off work. We need emergency funds and hotel rooms so people can properly isolate to prevent the spread. And none of that, none of those funds and resources have been coming from any level of government. In addition, there are essential scientific questions. Is the virus present in semen? Can we develop new tests that don't require a skin lesion? Can we test saliva during the early on flu-like illness? These are obvious questions, and without the proper funding, it will take too long to answer them. The ideal is we get these scientific questions answered as rapidly as possible. Instead of skin lesion tests, we have really good saliva tests. If you think you have monkeypox, you can go in, get a saliva test in your flu-like illness, get T-pox immediately, and maybe you don't even get an outbreak of skin lesions. Or if you do, you suffer much less and you're much less likely to spread the virus. And just I mean, the vaccine is the most ridiculous thing. There are people who wanted to get vaccine, and now instead of getting vaccine, they have monkeypox. Professor Osmondson, this whole controversy over whether to call this a sexually transmitted disease, you can also get it just in close uh, breathing contact. Isn't that right. right? It's it's a very tricky, you know, question. And there are obviously STIs that don't require sex to transmit them, like herpes. But I'm really worried. We're already seeing this pushback of, oh, if monkeypox is an STI, why are we seeing it in children? Sort of, again, doing the groomer thing, implying that queer people are having sex with children. This is incredibly, incredibly dangerous. This is a virus that commonly spreads throughout households when it's in households. It is on sheets. It's on towels. It's on clothes. And we need to be aware of those non-sexual modes of transmission so that if it pops up in a wrestling team or a massage parlor or a Broadway show where someone is handling costumes all the time, we actually, that's on our radar and we can diagnose it in those places and prevent spread there. I think it's a little bit myopic to being to be so focused on sex and the queer community. We need to be curious and open to the many places this virus may spread. Finally, Professor Osmondson, let's talk about the issue of global equity. There is a severe lack of vaccine here in the United States, uh, but multiply that many times over. Talk about the rest of the world. This was a choice. This international outbreak was a choice. The United States government let 28 million doses of the modern smallpox vaccine, Genios, expire and get binned from the national stockpile, as opposed to being used in the endemic regions from Congo to Nigeria, where people commonly are getting monkeypox. I was on a webinar with the head of the Nigerian CDC, who laughed when I asked, what countermeasures do you have? Do you have vaccine? Do you have treatment? They have nothing. If in Nigeria, where there's been an ongoing 
outbreak of human-to-human spread of monkeypox since 2017, if they had countermeasures there to care for this painful infection there, it's likely that we may have prevented the international spread of this virus. Infectious diseases show us that borders are meaningless. Viruses will spread because people interact around the world. It is our obligation to care for human suffering everywhere, not just because it will prevent us from potentially getting sick, but because human suffering is human suffering. So there is absolutely an issue with countermeasures, including vaccine and treatment globally, and capitalism does not set us up well to care for everybody. It is not a way to make a profit, but in our increasingly warming an increasingly interconnected world, we are going to see more of these crises. This is not a viral crisis. This is a crisis of late capitalism. Joe Osmondson, I want to thank you for being with us, professor of microbiology at New York University, scientist, activist, author of the new book, Virology, Essays for the Living, the Dead, and the Small Things in Between. We'll also link to that piece in The New Yorker that features Professor Osmondson. When we come back, we speak with California Congressmember Ro Khanna about his efforts to address the ongoing infant formula crisis impacting working-class families and parents of color to stop the price gouging. Stay with us. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. We turn now to look at the ongoing shortage of baby formula across the United States. In many cases, infant formula is a vital necessity, providing life-saving nutrition to thousands of babies in the U.S. for whom breastfeeding is not possible due to allergies or immune conditions or other situations. The crisis started last October after a whistleblower sent the Food and Drug Administration a report detailing safety and sanitation sanitation violations at the Abbott Nutrition Factory in Sturgis, Michigan, the largest baby formula manufacturing plant in the country. Actually, uh, the whistleblower had notified authorities long before last October. But it would be months before the FDA took action. Abbott fired the whistleblower. For babies who had consumed formula 
from the plant suffered bacterial infections. Two of them died. The FDA could not conclusively link the illnesses or deaths to that particular Sturgis plant. In February, Abbott shut down the plant and announced a voluntary recall of its Sturgis-manufactured baby formula. The FDA followed with a product warning. Four corporations control 90 percent of the baby formula market in the United States. President Biden met with most of them last month as he used after he used the Defense Production Act to speed up domestic production and gave an update on Operation Fly Formula. This is President Biden speaking last month. On Friday, FDA announced that, that Kendall NutriCare would be able to import formula from the UK. Today, we're announcing the United Airlines has agreed to offer cargo space for Kendall NutriCare uh, for the delivery of 3.7 bottles of the formula here in the States. I recently signed legislation to help make it easier for families to get the formula they need through the WIC program. I called on all 50 states to take action, and all 50 states answered the call, working with us to make that program more flexible. And we're going to stay focused on, go on doing even more. But the shortage continues. The Wall Street Journal reports Operation Fly Formulas transported just a week's worth of formula, and current stocks only meeting about 70 percent of demand. This is Mother Claire Lessicar speaking to KTVU in Santa Clara, California. It's been really scary. Um, my son, being two months old, he can only eat uh, formula, and he can't have anything else. I can't make something at home for him or find something else. So not having it available at our local stores has been really disconcerting. That mother is in the district of our next guest, California Congressmember Ro Khanna, who also hosted a recent roundtable with parents about the crisis. On Friday, he sent a letter to President Biden uh, calling for officials to engage in bold action to address the ongoing infant formula shortage and its impact, particularly on working-class families, especially Black and Latinx families, as parents of color are more likely to use formula in the first three months of an infant's life than white parents. Congressmember Khanna wrote, panic-fueled buying is furthering the shortages, and families who can't afford to stockpile formula continue to face price gouging from secondary sellers and exorbitant shipping costs from online retailers. Out of desperation, many are using formula brands that are incompatible with their children's nutritional needs, he wrote. Uh, Congressmember Khanna, lay out the issue. You also laid out bold actions to address this crisis. Amy, well, this is something that I'm hearing in my district from many moms. I mean, as you pointed out, Operation Formula Fly only brought one week of baby formula back. There is massive concentration in this industry. That's the root cause. Why is it that only four companies are producing the baby formula? There should have been antitrust action a long time ago. But going forward, there are a few key things we can do. First, you could invoke the Defense Production Act, not just to provide the supplies to Abbott. That's what the president has done. You could actually invoke the Defense Production Act to start manufacturing baby formula in this country. Uh, that's what Roosevelt did when there was shortages of production. Uh, they should be uh, producing more baby formula, not just at Abbott, but at other uh, facilities. And that is something that we've called on the president to do. Second, the president could buy baby formula uh, from the global markets. Right now, they're simply transporting it. They aren't actually buying in the global markets baby formula to have the stacks uh, 
in the United States shelved. Uh, and, and third, they should say that if baby formula is safe for European babies, it's safe for American babies. The FDA could do a lot more in providing that clearance. So uh, I applaud the president for taking steps. But it's sort of what happened is there was news made, there was an Oval Office address, and then everyone forgot about it, uh, other than the mothers who still have to feed their kids. So talk about the liability. I mean, this issue of corporate monopoly. I mean, you have a whistleblower. First, we thought it was last October that the whistleblower sent uh, a warning. It involves both the federal government, uh, the FDA, and also Abbott, uh, because after the whistleblower sent, it seems like, another warning, uh, ultimately, that whistleblower was fired. But the government didn't act, and Abbott certainly different and didn't. In fact, some are saying it engaged in a cover-up. Well, absolutely. The record shows that Abbott uh, engaged in uh, very, very uh, questionable uh, behavior. I mean, there has to be accountability. Why was the whistleblower fired? Uh, why did they not take action sooner, as you point out? Uh, and then, but the broader question, Amy, is why is it that we're so dependent on one or two manufacturers in this country. Uh, the, it shows this is a problem not just in baby formula. It's a problem in so many industries around this country. There are two or three or four major suppliers. They control, as you pointed out, 90 percent of the market share here in baby formula. And that puts American consumers at risk, both at risks for the type of severe shortages we are seeing now uh, and at risk for higher prices. So long term, we need antitrust action make sure there are many more players in the baby formula space. But short term, the government needs to get involved in the production and manufacturing, and they shouldn't just be relying on Abbott. I mean, there should be other places that they are trying to get uh, baby formula produced. And there are a number of mid-sized companies able and willing to manufacture. They may need government assistance, government support to be able to do that, and we should be willing to provide that. Uh, many wealthier Americans actually buy uh, baby formula online from European com companies. Um, why aren't these European companies uh, more easily available, their um, formula in the United States? Well, this is the FDA's uh, regulatory scheme where they want to approve uh, the uh, products in the United States. Now, some of that I am supportive, obviously, of the FDA having standards, but I don't believe that somehow the European standards are less strict and less safe uh, than the American standards. I believe that some of this may be actually a remnant of protectionism, uh, and it's not currently given the crisis the right policy. We should allow uh, Americans, particularly lower income, middle class Americans who don't have the luxury of going to Europe and buying the baby formula to have access to the European formula. Uh, one of the simplest things would be just to the FDA to come out and say, if the European regulators are saying it's safe, it's safe uh, in America. Let me ask you about breast milk. While it's considered healthier than formula, why aren't insurance companies requiring um, to require to pay for donor breast milk for mothers who have trouble breastfeeding? And also, many women with an oversupply of breast milk want to help mothers struggling during this formula crisis, but don't know enough about milk banks and safe donation practices. Those are very good points, Amy. The insurance companies should be paying for donor breast milk. The 
uh, insurance companies should be uh, paying for uh, anything that's going to get mothers the, the, the milk, whether it's formula or breast milk for their kids. And we need to do a better job of uh, publicizing uh, the donor uh, banks and where uh, mothers can get this assistance. I mean, one of the ironies here is you've got stories of mothers driving around, uh, finding formula, having their relatives drive around. And of course, gas is six bucks, six bucks, six fifty. Uh, and so it's compounding uh, the hardship on them. Uh, finally, I want to switch gears and just ask, uh, because of the January 6th insurrection hearings, do you think President Trump should be criminally charged? I believe that the January 6th committee should send a referral to the Justice Department. Uh, that's not for me to say, but I will say this. It's not enough for the Justice Department to just prosecute the individuals who showed up on January 6th. They need to hold accountable the people who tried to overturn our democratic results by having fraudulent uh, schemes uh, questioning results that were totally valid. And I'm hoping that uh, it, the accountability will go up the food chain. Merrick Garland, you think he, the attorney general, is moving too slowly? I would like to see there be more accountability for people at the top. I, look, I understand his job is difficult, not from a political perspective. I think he wants to make sure that when he indicts, uh, he can convict. And no prosecutor wants to indict and then have an acquittal, uh, which would be even worse than not indicting. Uh, so I, I've given him the benefit of the doubt. But I think there will be a, a lot of dissatisfaction in this country if the only people charged are those who were caught up in a mob uh, for a day, went there uh, and engaged in the insurrection. And the people who were actually plotting the overturning of the results uh, are left without accountability. Rokana, we want to thank you for being with us. Democratic congressman from California speaking to us from Fremont. And, well, we move from row to row. Well, that is with the overturning of Roe v. Wade. The battleground for abortion access now shifts to the states. Even as the U.S. first faces the worst rates of maternal mortality— among all rich nations, with black mothers um, facing three to four times the mortality rate of the national average. We'll speak with the directors of a new documentary called Aftershock. Stay with us. I love it here, because I don't know how to explain to them why I'm beautiful, because I am beautiful. Back home they're scared Oh, so scared of me That I became scared of me I become scared of me The way you smile When you believe in a future It's different It's different The way you smile When you believe in a future Now we moving forward, ever backwards, never forward, ever backwards, never. When the going gets rough and life gets tough, don't forget to breathe. Breathe by Sainabo Se. 
The song was part of the soundtrack to the documentary Aftershock. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Gooden. As reproductive and abortion rights advocates in the United States continue to reel following the Supreme Court's gutting of Roe v. Wade, the battleground for abortion access has shifted to the states. Public health experts are warning abortion bans will likely lead to more pregnancy-related deaths, with black women and people disproportionately impacted. The United States already has the highest maternal mortality rate of all wealthy nations. According to the Centers for Disease Control, black women and people are three times more likely to die than white women and people during or after a pregnancy due to racism and bias at hospitals and clinics and chronic underlying conditions caused by inequity in the healthcare access. Now, a new documentary looks into the crisis of maternal mortality among the black population, centering the stories of the families of two young black women who died after giving birth here in New York City, just six months apart from each other. They're Shamini Makiba Gibson, who was 30 years old when she died of a pulmonary embolism in October 2019. 13 days after giving birth at Brooklyn's Woodhull Hospital, and 26-year-old Amber Ray Rose Isaac, who died April 2020 after an emergency C-section at Montefiore Medical Center in the Bronx. This is the trailer for Aftershock. My daughter's story is loud, colorful, and artful. She was awake, aware, and active. And yet she still died. After she gave birth, Shimani was complaining that she had really sharp chest pains. The ambulance came. I'm telling them the symptoms. Is she on drugs? Next set of people come in. Is she on drugs? They kept asking her mother, is she on any drugs? I'm like, do y'all talk? We waited a solid 12 hours. She's gone. Black women are four times more likely to die than their white counterparts with the same symptoms. Why is that? This is a growing epidemic in our community. Hundreds and thousands of men are going through this same situation. Well, you couldn't tell me that I wouldn't be there. I've never lived in this house without her. You just got to keep pushing forward. I can't let Amber be another statistic. I had a plan. I had it mapped out. If these numbers were flipped around and white women were dying at the rate the black women are dying, it would be a national crisis. We fight against maternal morbidity event by event in order to create change. We can turn our pain into power and make something of this. Jamani Gibson! on spending a lifetime with Amber. I wanted to give her my life. This way, I'm still going to. The revolution will be tweeted, Instagram, Facebook. This fight is not over. When black mothers die, there's a ripple effect. We call this aftershocks. That's the trailer 
for the new documentary Aftershock, now streaming on Hulu, after it premiered at the Sundance Film Festival earlier this year. We're now joined by the co-directors, Paula Izelt and Tanya Lewis-Lee. Um, we welcome you both to Democracy Now! Um, I've watched this film twice now, when it premiered at Sundance and again um, this weekend. Uh, what a powerful, devastating film especially to come out now. Tanya Lewis-Lay, talk about why you directed this film and the message, the story of these two women and so many others. Well, thank you for having us. Uh, and, you know, it became clear that the black maternal mortality rate it's just going up. I mean, it's going up for all of us in this country, but for black women, it's getting worse. And, you know, I really wanted to tell the story of what was happening in the United States around black women's health. We know that black uh, uh, women's health and infants' health is a marker of a health of a nation. If mothers aren't doing well, if infants aren't doing well, none of us can do well. So we need to figure out how, what the problem is and how to fix it. And that's really the bottom line as to why I wanted to tell the story. And tell us about these two women who you feature, um, sadly, uh, posthumously, and speaking through their partners, the men who are now raising their infants that they died giving birth to. Yeah, Shimani Gibson uh, was a beautiful, vibrant woman. You see a bit of her uh, in the trailer. Uh, she had a daughter, Anari, and gave birth to her second child, Kari, and died 13 days later from a pulmonary embolism. Uh, Amber Rose Isaac, uh, as you mentioned, died in April 2020. She had what is called HELP syndrome, uh, and which is very treatable condition that many pregnant women get. But unfortunately, when she showed up to her doctor with symptoms of HELP syndrome, she was dismissed. They did not listen to her. And unfortunately, by the time she had a C-section, it was too late to save her. And it is clear that these women were loved women. They were loving women. And their partners, Amari Maynard, the partner to Shimani, and Bruce McIntyre, the partner to Amber, loved them so much. And through their grief, and what I've learned from these, these families is that grief really is an expression of love. Through their grief, they've become activated to improve outcomes for all of us. And they're doing amazing work. Amari's a painter. He paints uh, uh, portraits of other women who have passed away. He reaches out to the other fathers when they lose a partner from uh, childbirth complications to offer support. And that's how we met Bruce McIntyre because Amari reached out to Bruce when Amber passed away. And then Bruce has just been working on legislation to make for um, uh, birthing centers that can have midwives as front-facing and to bring a birthing center to the Bronx. They're amazing men doing great work for all of us. I want to go to another clip from your film, Aftershock. This is Shawnee Gibson, the mother of Shamini Benton Gibson, who died two weeks after giving birth, and Shamini's partner, who you were just talking about, Amari Maynard, uh, as well as her sister, Jasmine Gibson. We hear first from Shawnee, her mom. She ended up with a C-section. You did amazing, Shimon. So we leave the hospital within the first week. She was complaining about having shortness of breath when she talked. 
She walked down the stairs to get something, and when she was trying to get back up, she couldn't move. Like, she was just, she had to just lay on the floor for a while. We called the hospital, tell them what the symptoms were. The doctor said, you know, it's okay. Just relax. That proceeded for the next two weeks. We go back to the hospital for um, Shimani so that they can remove her staples from her C-section. Again, tell them what the symptoms were, asking what are some things that we can do. And, you know, the answer pretty much was the same every time. Just make sure that she rests. There wasn't much of a sense of urgency on their part at all. That's the expert. I'm not a doctor. So, okay. I rally people to make meals for her. Do I did what we do. Just take care of her. Two weeks after, you know, she gave birth, Shimani was complaining that she had really sharp chest pains. She says, I want to go to the hospital now. Her mom and her aunt were in the back with her. And as I'm packing the bag, I just hear them screaming. They're just screaming, Omari, Omari, come in here, come in here. So I run in there, and then I just see Shimani is, she's just in shock. So that's a clip from Aftershock. Uh, Paula Eiselt, you're the other director of this film. I mean, what we get from this film is that these women just didn't go into shock. They were complaining that they were experiencing problems. Talk about why the maternal mortality rate is so much higher in the black community. This issue of being heard, of taking their pain seriously. Yeah. um, You know, our our birthing system and our maternal health system is like no other country. Uh, We're the only country in the industrialized world that does not have midwives integrated into our system. And um, and our rates um, correlate to that. The other countries that have midwives, their mortality rates are much, much lower. And I mentioned that because midwifery is human centered care. Um, that's the philosophy of midwifery is that a pregnant person, a pregnant woman um, she knows her body best and she comes first. And um, in midwifery care, women are seen and heard um, much more than in the hospital system where, um, you know, it's not it's not a shared decision making model, as Helena Grant in our film says. So in a system that uh, puts profit over people, doesn't listen and center um center birthing people um, already, black women are even more affected by this due to the systemic racism that's ingrained ingrained into our system. And actually, it's that racism that um, is the reason why we don't have midwives, because um, at the turn of the 20th century, white men decided they were going to take over the maternal health system and launched a really successful marketing campaign um, against midwives, specifically black midwives, um, saying they're they're dirty, they're untrained, uh, babies are dying because of them, and really pushed midwifery out of the way um, in a way that no other industrialized country has. So we essentially don't have that level of care here, and it's because of that racist campaign um, that got us here. I want to go back to Aftershock. This is Shawnee Benton Gibson, the mother of Shamini, uh, who died two weeks after giving birth, speaking at a rally in Washington, D.C. Black 
lives matter, but black wombs create black lives. And when we forget that, we forget our humanity. We want to make sure that our grandbabies, our children, have mothers to raise them, and that fathers are not left to figure it out on their own. We must stop this. Black lives matter because black wombs matter. Black lives matter because black wombs matter. Black lives matter because black wombs matter, and a black womb created you. Uh, that is Shawnee Gibson. Her daughter, Chamonix, died after childbirth just a few weeks later. Tanya Lewis-Lee, can you talk about C-sections, cesarean sections, and their relation to this higher death rate? Not that you condemn women getting C-sections who need them. The hospital's incentive for performing a cesarean section, even when it's not necessary. Yeah, absolutely. First of all, I want to say C-sections are really important. They save lives. And uh, at the same time, though, C-sections are major surgery. C-sections are major surgery. It's not just a simple thing. And when you have one C-section, it, it sort of puts you in a position to have another C-section and other complications. And unfortunately, in the United States, the rate of C-sections has gone up over the last 25, 30 years, and we've seen the maternal mortality rate go up alongside of it. And unfortunately, uh, what happens in our birthing system here in the United States, uh, when we're surrounded by uh, OB-GYNs, and they are surgeons, and they are important, we need them. Uh, Paula was just talking about midwives. Midwives can do just about anything a doctor can except for cut you, right? Uh, so, so I just want to say that. Uh, but, but, you know, the thing about the C-section rate is, um, you know, we, we really need to be careful about how we are applying C-sections. What happens is we induce women to get them going, and then it doesn't move along fast enough, and you're pushed into a C-section. C-sections take less time. They, they cost less money, but they are reimbursed more by the hospitals than a natural, spontaneous vaginal birth. Vaginal birth takes a long time. The regular spontaneous birth is a process that takes a long time. Uh, it's okay. It's healthy. It's the way our bodies were built. If we can go through that process of natural birth, uh, it just it costs more, and, and hospitals don't necessarily want to pay for it. But I think, in general, we really need to think about, in this country, how we're birthing. Is it really about hurrying up and get that baby out, or is it about allowing a woman's body to do what it's supposed to do that she can, so that she can bring forth this baby in the time that she's supposed to be doing it in the, in the safest way possible. Paula Zelt, in the film, uh, you have uh, expectant mom, Felicia Ellis, from Tulsa, Oklahoma, um, saying a black woman having a baby is like a black man at a traffic stop with police. Um, in Oklahoma, the maternal mortality rate black maternal mortality rate is double the national average. Talk about this in the momnibus bill in Congress. Yeah. Um, and, and we have 30 seconds. Okay. So um, the 
the omnibus bill um, set of bills in Congress would be the largest investment in maternal health, specifically black maternal health um, in this in this country. It would um, improve access to midwives, as we spoke about before, increase um, the complete perinatal workforce, um, create more culturally congruent care. So that's um, allowing more black midwives into the space and more educational trainings. It would extend postpartum uh, coverage throughout the country. Right now, uh, Medicaid in some states only cover up to six weeks, and we know that women can die up to one year postpartum. So um, that that collection of bills would do a tremendous amount um, to cut down this mortality rate and improve birthing for all American women. Paula Eiselt and Tanya Lewis lay a fantastic film, co-directors of the new documentary Aftershock, now streaming on Hulu. I'm Amy Goodman. Stay safe. Wear a mask.